You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we are super pumped to bring you our second part interview covering Bitcoin. Last week, we had Dr. Saifedean Amus on the show, and he talked about some of the fascinating ideas like the stock to flow and time preference. But on today's show, we bring you another rising star within the Bitcoin community that complements much of Saifedean's work quite well because he put a lot of mathematics and statistics into the ideas of stock to flow. Our guest is an anonymous personality in the Bitcoin space, but he has experience as a quant in a multi-billion dollar international fund, and he goes by the name Plan B. This is a riveting discussion, and it will not take much time for people listening to this to realize that we're dealing with an extremely intelligent individual who's presenting some ideas that will undoubtedly give you a lot to think about after you're done listening to this episode. And so with that... Here is Plan B. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pish. And as always, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. Today, we have Plan B with us, like we said in the introduction. Plan B, I'll tell you what, we have been chatting on Twitter. We've crossed paths. And it's just so exciting for me to be able to just talk with you and have a conversation for once. Thanks for having me. And it's great to be on your show, man. All right. So, hey, I want to start off just talking about a little bit of who you are, because some people that are listening to this are not familiar with your work. And a lot of our community is not hardcore crypto or Bitcoin background. They're actually value investors. So what I want to do is I want to give people an introduction to your background as a quant investor. So talk to us a little bit about that and how you found yourself in the Bitcoin community and in this Bitcoin world of ideas. I'm based in Amsterdam. We manage a multi-billion dollar balance sheet mainly focused on mortgages, fixed income, loans, and well, the usual derivatives and structured finance products as well. I'm not a hardcore Bitcoiner myself and entered from a financial perspective. But of course, as an investor, the supply cap, the 21 million supply cap jumped right to the foreground. And I was interested in that, how you can keep a cap like that in a digital world. So the digital scarcity thing was what hooked me from the start. I'm an investor. I like the story. I like the narratives, but I need the numbers. So there's a lot of numbers out there, but it's all TA, technical analysis, and not much solid statistical econometric analysis. That being my background, I thought that would be a spot that I could add and help at least the investor part of the Bitcoin community. And that's what I really like about it, because whenever you talk about Bitcoin, one of the questions that always pops up is, so what's the value? Please tell the audience about your research. I started with the numbers. Of course, Bitcoin is a different animal than the things I normally model. So there's no cash flow like a company or a fixed income instrument or a derivative. It's a bit like gold. It's just there. How do you uh, value it? In fact, the same problem is there for gold as well, because you could, of course, look at the cost of mining of gold or Bitcoin. I just went with the digital scarcity idea. Also, after reading Saifedean Amus's book, The Bitcoin Standard, he has a whole chapter in there about stock-to-flow. And stock-to-flow is, of course, also known in the commodities world, gold, silver. So I use that as a that stock-to-flow measure as a quantification of the scarcity and then use that as an input in a valuation model. 
So maybe for the listeners who don't know, stock is the reserve, the amount of Bitcoin or the amount of gold that's above the ground that is just there. And flow is the yearly production. And then you just divide the two. Bitcoin, you have 17 or almost 18 million Bitcoins right now. 750,000 per year are added. That number is rapidly declining, by the way. But if you divide those two, you get a stock-to-flow multiple of 27. And what I discovered was that the stock-to-flow number is correlated with the market value. So, for example, uh, the stock-to-flow of gold is 55 or something, and the market value is about 10 trillion US dollars. If you put all those stock-to-flow numbers of all the commodities out there and put them on the line, you get this straight line. It's actually a power law with a super high R squared, super high correlation. It's just amazing. So there's actually two models out there. So there's the cross-asset model where it all started with gold and silver and that's that, et cetera. But there's also the time series model where you, if you plot the stock-to-flow time series of Bitcoin of the last 10 years against the market cap, you can also see the correlation there and measure uh, the correlation. And it's also really high, like 95%. Well, I know personally, whenever I read it, I was like, this is it. It's about time somebody has put what I felt was happening, but didn't know how to describe it, right? And I think a lot of people in the community had this intuition that what you were describing and what you were actually applying mathematics to was happening, but we just didn't know how to describe it. And so here you come into it and you start describing it. For people that are not familiar with R squared values, describe what this is, describe what it means whenever you model something and then the, the actuals compared to what the projections were, what that means. R squared is a statistical measure for goodness of fit of a model. So if a model fits really good to the data, like perfect fit, it has a high value, 100%. And if there's no fit at all, it's zero. If you look at the numbers for the cross-asset stock-to-flow model, 99.5%, that's like almost a perfect fit. That's amazing. I've never, ever seen that before. And if you look at the 95% of the time series stock-to-flow model, that's also very, very high. So it measures the amount of variance in the price, how much of that is explained by the amount of variance in the stock-to-flow. And in fact, it's not the most important measure. There are other measures, but it's a frequently used measure. So that's why I use it. So you come up with this model, and this model explains using mathematics what the price of Bitcoin should be. And a lot of that has to do with the halving function. So could you please elaborate on what that is and also give us an idea of the estimated price levels depending on the year that we end? The halving is a very important thing because every 210,000 blocks, that's about four years, the um, subsidy that miners get when they mine a block is halved. From an investor's point of view, the uh, supply is halved. That doubles the stock-to-flow measure and increases the value as well. So especially those stepwise nonlinear function is very, very interesting because markets are anticipating on it. There's a lot of debate and narratives always around halvings. But if you look at the numbers, so we're now at a stock-to-flow of Bitcoin of 27, and that gives a value of well, about a little under $10,000. So we're about there, a little bit over right now. But after the halving, if the stock-to-flow doubles, that's in May 2020, so that's eight months away. Very interesting, very, very awesome event. The stock-to-flow doubles, but the value of Bitcoin goes eight or 10x, somewhere between, let, let me give a rough range, somewhere between 50 and 100K. 
starting somewhere after May next year. Four years later, there's another halving in 2024. The stock to flow will go to 100, something we as humans have never seen before. Spectacular moment in time. And the value that goes mathematically with an asset that has a stock to flow of 100 is somewhere between 400000 and $1 million per Bitcoin. When you say this has never happened in history, I just want people that are listening to this to understand what you mean by that. And what you're saying is because we've never had a digital asset that had scarcity, and that's what we're dealing with here because that's what blockchain technology provides, which is a decentralized fixed supply of a digital token. And because of this halving function, you're introducing this in the past. If you were mining gold, you can keep mining and pulling more gold out of the ground. But with Bitcoin, that noose is tightening with this halving function. And that's why you're seeing the stock to flow get so insanely tight. And we've never seen those kind of numbers before, like you described. And so you're suggesting that that's going to potentially create this situation where we see these very high prices on a digital fixed supply asset. Yes. And I think people underestimate the speed at which this is going. The stock to flow will double to uh, around the gold levels after May 2020. That means the market cap of Bitcoin will be around the same as or a little bit under, but in the trillions, like one or two trillion dollars compared to the monetary base of the US dollar, which is three trillion dollars. That's already order of magnitude in the same range. Four years later, 2024, stock to flow 100 and the uh, market cap will be in the 10 or 20 trillion, that way above the US dollar. So it has all kinds of implications. We're not going there smoothly, I guess. Now I have to ask you, what is the end market cap for Bitcoin? Say that this goes all the way and replaces fiat currencies. And I'm not saying this is possible at all, but I think it's important to understand the impact of your model should this materialize. So for Bitcoin right now, we are around 100. $80 $80 billion. You mentioned gold's market cap before, around $8 trillion. What are we looking at here? First of all, I think if we hit $10 trillion, $20 trillion market cap, that will be the point that your unit of account will change maybe. It wouldn't make sense to measure things in dollars. The model is in dollars as well, of course. So that would be the point in time where you, where you have to think about measuring, maybe in Bitcoin. If we look at the dollar world, like you said, derivatives, what is it? $500 trillion or bond market, $100, $200 trillion, I think. There's real estate. It's amazing. And all those markets have a monetary premium that's beyond the uh, fundamental value those assets have. If you look at stocks, for example, the fundamental value of stocks, it's derived from dividends, but the dividend yield now is very, very low. Same with bonds with the very low, even negative interest rates. What is the value... <laughs> of a bond like that. That's actually real world problems that we have to deal with as institutional investor. And look at real estate. Real estate is bought as an investment, especially in big cities like New York, London, Amsterdam. The value of living is is also there, but the monetary premium, if you will, is bigger. I think the monetary premium will go to the asset that captures and holds it the best, and that will be Bitcoin. So it might as well trigger some very unintended consequences like stock markets and real estate markets losing that monetary premium. So when we look at the market cap of Bitcoin today, and I think this is important because a lot of people that are participating in this are looking at it from a very myopic point of view, just because it's not something that they dedicate a lot of their time to. So they're looking at the price today and they're saying, wow, it's $10,700. 
that's really expensive for a Bitcoin, right? <laughs> and that's, that's kind of the end of their analysis because they're looking at it from a very short-sighted point of view. But when you scope out and you hear those huge, huge numbers, those trillions of dollars, let's just say $10 trillion or $20 trillion, and you're looking at the market cap where it sits today. So if one Bitcoin is priced where it is today at $10,700, the market cap is only $192 billion. Now you're looking at, if we go 10x from here, that's $2 trillion. If you go 100x, now you're at $20 trillion. That's where the price, if you would see these numbers that Plan B is talking about, going up to a couple hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars, that's how you get there from here, is because that market cap is going to go into the trillions instead of just being $200 billion like it is today. I love asking this question. What is an interesting conversation that you've had recently, maybe with some of your friends that are quants, or you're saying that you're getting some pretty interesting emails from some interesting folks that are in some very high places? Has there been a conversation or has there been an engagement that is at the top of your memory as being like, wow, is this really happening? What amazes me most about a lot of the conversations I have with my traditional colleagues, if you will, not with the Bitcoin colleagues, is the level of misunderstanding. And even the people that are a bit positive, they don't really trust the high predictions made by the stock to flow model, for example. They just don't believe it. That's something that reminds me of the Black and Scholes model uh, at the time. I really like that story. Black and Scholes won the Nobel Prize in economics. They invented in 1973 the option pricing model, and they put it out there. It was in public. Or not much people understood it, not much people believed it. And basically, there was like 10 years of time to exploit the model while it was out in the open. That's also what's going to happen with the stock to flow now. People just don't believe it or don't know it or are so far behind. And that's what amazes me in all the uh, discussions I have. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So continuing on this, you have extensive experience with derivatives. Talk to us about what is happening to BACT. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with BACT, it's the new exchange that the owners of the New York Stock Exchange are standing up right now. And could you also talk to us about why a derivatives market sale in Bitcoin are different than one sale in cash? Yeah, great question, especially today since BACT is opening its warehouses today. Derivatives markets are very important because of the network effect for Bitcoin. It's one of the network effects and it opens the market, it makes the market more attractive for institutional investors. Big investors are always on the lookout for a way to sell their investment. It has to be a liquid market, a deep market. They must always be able to sell at a normal price. And futures markets enable that. So you can always sell outright, the Bitcoin in this case. But with the future markets, you can also sell and close your position in the futures market. There are several futures markets and one big one in Chicago, the CME, open uh, since 2017, I think. And the CME, that is a cash-settled futures exchange. So you can sell and buy Bitcoins for a price somewhere in the future, to be settled in the future, but always settled in cash. So you, ne- you could theoretically uh, sell more than 21 million Bitcoins, even if there's not even 21 million Bitcoins. So, of course, you need a lot of cash for that, but you could do it, especially in the context of quantitative easing and governments having uh, endless access to the printing prices. That is not a favorable uh, thing. There could be fiat games out there, and that's why it's very, very important to have Bucked opening his warehouses today and going live 23rd, I think, of uh, September with a physically settled futures contract. So in order to sell Bitcoins in the future, you actually need to have those Bitcoins. If you don't have them, you can't sell them. And that changes the whole game because first, there can be arbitrage between CME and Bucked, between Chicago and New York. If the prices are very different, You just buy and sell at the same time in the future against different prices. It will be like free money. So that will uh, will be arbitraged away very soon. And the second thing is, it will be very, very hard to open a short position. Because if you sell your Bitcoin and you know you have to deliver those Bitcoin, you have to have them. (laughs) You have to buy them. And when the price goes up, it's not a matter of putting in more fiat. You really need to buy those Bitcoins. So I think people will be very, very cautious shorting that thing. My personal opinion, I was hearing you talk about the sharp ratio and position sizing, and this has been something that I've been kind of shouting from the mountaintops after hearing you talk about it. I personally think this is the elephant in the room for 
all of financial planners and managers in the world right now. I think this idea is absolutely massive. This whole idea of correlation, sharp ratio, position size. Yes. And it ties into the derivatives pricing as well. So a sharp ratio is a measure of risk return, a risk adjusted return. Actually, you divide the return of an asset by the risk and the risk is usually measured in standard deviation. Now, it's very hard to see assets that have a sharp ratio above one, where the risk is smaller than the return. Usually the return is higher than the risk and, and you get the return is, is lower than the risk. So you get a sharp ratio of less than one. And in theory, of course, the more risk, the more standard deviation, the more return. And that's what you see in the, in the sharp ratio. Now with Bitcoin, it has a superior sharp ratio because it has average, it does are all average numbers, but it has average returns of above 200% per year. And the worst loss is about 80% in a year, which is a lot, of course. It's, it's the reason why people don't invest in Bitcoin because, whoa, it has such high volatility. I never understand why people say that because, okay, 80%, that's a lot. And I actually did that three times, right? It, it did in 2011, 2014, and 2018. All those three times you see the papers and the mainstream media write about the tulip bubbles and it's all uh, a Ponzi and blah, blah, blah. But it's just an 80% drawdown, and 80% is less than 200%. That's what I wanted to say. The sharp ratio is above one. And for um, a quant, someone who is used to pricing derivatives, that's like a, a light bulb. Bang, okay, we can use this from very neat mathematical tricks. To keep it simple, it's all about investment sizing, if you see numbers like this. It's the same with poker, by the way. Maybe that's, that's uh, recognizable. It's the Kelly criteria. Depending on the odds that you have, you can size your bet. If your odds are low, if your sharp ratio is low, you're not going to bet the farm, you're going to bet a little bit. And if your odds are better, you bet more. For example, size your investment to 50%. You would not have the risk of minus 80%. You would have a risk of minus 40%. That's more or less what stocks uh, <laughs> would give you. And the return would be not 200%, but would be 100%, which is much, much better more than stocks would give you. So if you go to the extreme and invest just 1% of your portfolio in Bitcoin and let the other 99% do nothing, keep it cash or something, so only 1% in Bitcoin, that would outperform the S&P 500 over a four-year period for all years in the past six, seven, eight years. So every single year, Bitcoin 1%, 99% cash would outperform the S&P 500. Yeah, I think you're right about the elephant in the room. That opens all sorts of doors for arbitrage. So I was reading a book where they were interviewing Ray Dalio, and Ray was giving his points on how he does his approach. And for people, you know, most people on our show are familiar with Ray Dalio, but if people aren't familiar with Ray Dalio, his personal net worth is anywhere from like 16 to $18 billion. He runs the biggest hedge fund on the entire planet, hundreds of billions of dollars. Ray was asked, okay, so like, what's your secret sauce? And Ray says, well, I believe the holy grail of investing is really kind of two things. It's finding something that has a very high sharp ratio, which is what you just described, the highest sharp ratio you can find. And then you have to mix it with 10 to 15 uncorrelated, at a minimum, 10 to 15 uncorrelated positions that also have high sharp ratios. So when you combine the uncorrelation with very high sharp ratios with what you just described, 
that's how you can optimize a portfolio that minimizes your downside risk, but maximizes your upside return. So we've already established the return relative to the risk. You're measuring volatility with risk that Bitcoin has outperformed the US stock market, all the commodity indices, the fixed income market, even though central banks are bidding them into oblivion. I mean, you could go on and on. You can list every single asset. Bitcoin is outperforming them from the sharp ratio on every single one of them for the last five years without incident in the last five years. I totally agree with uh, Ray Dalio. It's all about the high uh, sharp ratio. And Bitcoin has a high, a high sharp ratio, and that is not even taking into account the correlation diversification potential that's there. Bitcoin could be that safe haven asset that gold was in the past. There are some studies out there that show this already, that Bitcoin has a negative correlation to equities, uh, for example, and um, to other assets, to all other assets, basically, which will make it the holy grail right, of all investments. It has a high sharp ratio and negative correlation with all the other assets. However, we haven't had a real financial crisis in the last 10 years. In a way, we haven't been able to really stress test this correlation uh, diversification potential of Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin was made in the beginning of 2009, just after, at the height of the global financial crisis, as a response also to the global financial crisis. So that was the last big dips we saw in, in equities. And we're actually heading, of course, fast towards the second recession and crisis. Inverted yield curves and all the other um, measures are pointing to a, um, a next recession. And that will be the time that we really test Bitcoin for negative correlation with other assets. And that would make it undeniable for even the most traditional institutional investor. Interesting. So let's zoom out here. There's $17 trillion of negative yielding bonds in this world. I know you have some very interesting thoughts on how that plays into the Bitcoin thesis. Could you please elaborate? The negative interest on $17 trillion worth of bonds is, together with the quantitative easing, the reason I am in Bitcoin. That was actually the reason I was actively looking for a high sharp ratio, non-correlated assets, a hedge, if you will, against the next crisis. And that's how I came on the path of Bitcoin. I find it amazing, the amount of negative interest rate bonds. It's uncharted waters for sure. We have never seen this before. I also think it's unsustainable and it has unintended consequences. As a matter of fact, there's a very important report out there It's an IMF report about deep negative interest rates. And it's not a a research, it's a proposal. It's a readily implementable proposal. Deep negative interest rates means minus 5, minus 10%. That report is out there, ready to implement. I actually talked to the uh, writers of that report. One of them is very active on Twitter. It's Miles Kimball. Very interesting to see what the intentions are, what the thinking of the central banks is behind those negative interest rates, and especially the deep negative interest rates, because we will go there. In fact, the intention is really good. It's like a bank tech. They are saying, okay, the banks and all the big bad boys, they are getting negative interest rates, so they're earning nothing. But of course, for the public, the retail investor, they cannot go to zero. They'll be at zero, which is low, but still better than all the big investors. That's a way to make it better for the common man. That's the intention. It is a good intention. What's also an argument of that IMF paper is that it's better to go negative interest rate route than to let it all explode, have a recession, and then build it up from there. The losses are bigger in that scenario. So let's go the negative interest rate route. 
That's one opinion. I think the unintended consequences like uh, gross misallocation of capital is making it worse than better. Most people like me or either an investor or a quant or something are looking at the markets. They are starting to see the uh, unsustainability of this because we're talking about 25 to a third of all the bonds out there that are negative yielding at the moment. Of course, you can still buy them and make money. If the, yield, if the interest goes even deeper, you make a lot of money in fair value on those assets. That army of people hedging, not trusting this negative interest rate scenario and hedging their positions accordingly with Bitcoin, that army is going to grow slowly but steadily every day. Back to the idea that you stated there as far as, well, if people have an expectation that the rates are only going to go lower, then they could buy them and sell them at a profit. It is the definition of the greater fool's theory of investing, where you're entering into a contract that you fully know you're going to lose money on. If you hold it into maturity, you are guaranteed to lose money. It'd be like you and me saying, hey, let's shake. I'm going to give you 100 bucks, fully knowing that you're going to give me 95 back in the future when this matures. That's You're literally signing up to lose money. The only way I can make money in that deal is if I find a fool that's greater than myself. I'm issuing it there at a $5 loss. The only way is if somebody else comes along and is willing to take an even bigger loss. There's just no way that's sustainable. There's no way that's sustainable. It's the very definition of a Ponzi in a way, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it is the definition of a Ponzi scheme. So historically, there's plenty of examples of hyperinflation in the world. So we could go back to the 1920s. That's the most famous one with the mark against gold. And you kind of look at that chart and you can just see this massive printing of the mark through that period of time. I'm kind of curious because if we're measuring the value of Bitcoin compared to all other fiat currencies, this chart looks very similar the parabolic shoot to the moon kind of printing of fiat in relation to the value of these 21 million Bitcoins that has a fixed supply. I'm kind of curious if you've ever thought about doing any kind of research or that you've heard of any kind of research as to how long that takes to play out because we're dealing with the global supply of fiat versus just the fiat supply of a small country that we've seen in the past. Because we've never seen anything like this on a global scale historically. Actually, two things. I have one chart out there that compares the Weimar 1923 hyperinflation in Germany with Bitcoin. Really scary how well it tracks that Weimar picture. And the Weimar picture is, as you described it, it's very parabolic, even on a log scale. Last 10 years, Bitcoin tracks that Weimar chart, that hyperinflation chart, perfectly. As a matter of fact, I was looking for some other asset that had the same performance as Bitcoin had the last 10 years. So that did a 10x every two years, for example. There was nothing I could find, nothing even close except this Weimar chart. I think we can add the Venezuela chart uh, and Zimbabwe chart by now. But uh, yeah, on a global scale, it, it might be even worse. I'm actually doing um, some research to predict which country will be the first one to adapt Bitcoin, which I mean, you can calculate which ones are smaller a monetary base than Bitcoin already, which countries don't have large exports, so they don't have the Triffin dilemma that you see uh, very well uh, displayed in the uh, Trump tweets at the moment. U.S. has a big Triffin dilemma. They have a world reserve currency, U.S. dollars. You can print it. That's the advantage. But of course, the high value, the strong U.S. dollar makes it more difficult for 
the companies like Boeing and Caterpillar to, to export because their export will be more expensive for other countries, say for Europe or Japan. So the Triffin dilemma is real, but it's not there for a lot of countries, especially the smaller countries that don't have export. So you can rank all the 150 countries against those kind of criteria and actually quite easily predict which countries it will be very uh, beneficial for to make the jump to Bitcoin. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. So in the same context, who would be most at disadvantage to make that jump? I think the United States has too much to lose to um, give up their um, reserve currency uh, position. Same, for example, for Germany. It has too much export to make that jump. If you think about it, the Triffin dilemma is a real monster and Bitcoin is the solution. So that's one of the big misunderstandings at the moment. I hope gets out of the way soon. I might play a role in that as well. I would really hope that central bankers, the IMF and all the big banks come together, talk about this situation that's out there now with quantitative easing and negative interest rate yields and maybe the next recession. Because the intention, I'm sure, is good. They want to solve it. And Bitcoin, if well explained, could very well be a solution, our only way out to all this. 
It gets rid of the Triffin dilemma, but you can only do it if everybody does it. So nobody has the disadvantage. So if you can go come to an agreement with China, with the US, with Europe, Japan, and, and all the big countries, the, G, the G7, with China, for the world, that could really mean much. That could be the next step to a better money technology that Bitcoin is, in my, uh, in my opinion. I think if there will be a coalition of countries, it will not be the big countries because they're fighting over a lot of stuff and they have too much to lose. But it could very well be a coalition of smaller companies that go together. And there are some very pro-Bitcoin small companies out there and growing, like Singapore, like Malta, like Estland, Letland, Litauen, small high-tech countries that probably will uh, cooperate. So plan B, what is the number one thing that you think people misunderstand about Bitcoin? Yeah, that is a tough question. This being an investor podcast, I think one of the big misunderstandings is why Satoshi left. If you know the answer to that question, if you research it and know the answer to that question, you protect yourself against a lot of misunderstanding because there is a lot of scammers and fraud and misinformation out there. Why did Satoshi leave? Why is it important not to have a leader? No CEO, no corporation, no government, no pre-mine. If you understand why that is and why you need just a peer-to-peer network and peer-to-peer mathematical protocol and some energy to protect it, you know the answers to a lot of things in Bitcoin. So one of the last questions that we always like to ask is, where can the investor go and make their own informed opinion about a topic? Where should the novice investor go to seek the best unbiased information? I would certainly advise them to go look into their um, circle of friends and family who is already a Bitcoin uh, expert or knows about Bitcoin to teach from them. That goes a lot faster. But of course, you don't know how good they are. So I'll give some resources. Please read the white paper. The white paper is a must read. If you haven't read it, go read it. It's only nine pages, including the references. It's very concise and easily written, and it has everything in it. It will make a lot of things clear and you won't be sensitive to scammers anymore. So read the white paper then. Seyfedina Moose's book, The Bitcoin Standard, of course, is the Bitcoin Bible. You should read it. It's longer, but it's, it's a good read. And I would say all the uh, podcasts that are out there uh, right now, your podcast, Stefan Levera has a nice podcast, lots out there, what Bitcoin did. Things are going so fast that books are too late. Articles also. Podcasts are really great thing. I I never listened to a podcast before I was in Bitcoin. Now I listen to a Bitcoin podcast every day in the car. That's really good. Make sure you have the right ones. So the ones I mentioned, that's important for investors, but also for journalists. There is a site out there. It's called hive.one, H-I-V-E dot one. And it has a list. It's a sort of Google for who is who in Bitcoin land. So you can see who's number one, two, three. It goes to a thousand. But if you want to know something about Bitcoin, follow those people first, and then you can spread out to others. But make sure you follow those people because they know they are mathematically chosen to be on that list because they did a lot of podcasts, they wrote a lot of stuff, and they are respected by the community. I absolutely love that last point. It is so important that you get your information from the right people. We'll have a link to that Hive site that has that listing. 
And I'm telling you, folks, make sure you follow the right people. Just don't follow some random person that you come across on Twitter because they might be trying to push or shill something that is in their self-interest and not yours. And I think that when you go to a person like Adam Back or Nick Zabo, these guys that actually have contributions to writing the code for how the encryption works, trust me, you're going to get a much more quality response and understanding as to how things are happening. What's the vantage point to look at that's not going to get you in trouble? Because there's a lot of different interests out there in this community mostly because people don't understand what it is that they're doing. So I would tell you that to hyper-focus on the top few people that actually are the ones that are creating and designing all of this. Plan B, fantastic comment there. I'll have that in the show notes. Please give people a handoff to yourself and anything else that you want to put out there for the community about yourself. So you can find me on Twitter, Plan B at 100 trillion US dollars. There is a Medium article with all the stuff and the model described in it out there. It's it's on the pinned tweet. If you want to calculate Dr. Flo yourself, play with the models. There's a GitHub as well. It's under the pinned tweet with all the models and data available for the quants that love to, um, to do it themselves. Yeah, I think that's about it. Well, Plan B, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Your research is just fascinating. It's so excited to see somebody. I'm so excited to see somebody come into the community and just drop these really high quality papers with a lot of analysis in there, a lot of math in there. And it's just really exciting to be able to chat with you. So thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you. All right, guys. So at this point in time in the show, we'll play a question from the audience. And this question comes from Adam. Hey, guys, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you so much for your amazing work. So I recently listened to Ray Dalio's The Impact of China's Growth on the World Economy interview. During the discussion, Dalio describes China as the rising power that challenges the US, the existing world power. Here are my questions. How should one invest considering China's rising power? Would you suggest investing directly in Chinese stocks? If yes, which one would you consider? Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. That's a great question. I think it's important not to overestimate the effect of the rise of China for you as a stock investor. The rise of China is known by stock investors in general, just like the rise of India is known. Based on the Shiller PE, you can expect something like a 6-7% to return investing in the Chinese stock market, which is definitely not expensive, but it's also not very cheap. So it's a valuation that reflects both the potential in China but also the risk of investing in a country where regulation is very different than what we're used to in the West. So to your question, I personally only own one Chinese stock, and that is Alibaba. And this is not a recommendation by any means. I also bought the stock at a different price than what it is today. But it's more a bet on e-commerce in general, which of course is heavily dependent on GDP growth, which is favorable in China compared to the West. But it's also because I think that China has an advantage in collecting data, which is very important for big tech companies. And I think that's fundamental for the very structure of what Alibaba is trying to achieve. But it's important for me to underline that this is not a bet on China per se, but on the specific company. So keeping that in mind, I do not recommend that you invest in China for the sake of investing in China, if the sole reason is that you think it would prosper and grow stronger. If you were to target specific Chinese stocks, you would need to understand the Chinese culture better 
as it is to a large extent a closed economy compared to many other economies. You could buy a Chinese ETF tracking the stock index, and I can't see why it won't make a decent return. Say if you hold it for at least a decade. But if you do, I have a few words of caution. Some of them are quite expensive in management fee, which they shouldn't be for a passive managed index. And another issue is that the market weighted funds are tilted heavily into financials. Up to fifty percent is not uncommon, which poses a risk in itself if you decide to go for a specific Chinese ETF. So, to sum up, yes, like Redalio, I'm bull long term on China. I do think there's a paradigm shift, but I do not invest differently, and it doesn't change my overall strategy. So for me, I think investing in China is fairly straightforward.、Uh, first, the ETF approach that Stig mentioned earlier is the simplest way to get exposure. Watch the fees, like Stig said, and also make sure that there's not too much exposure to the financial companies. If you're feeling more adventurous and looking for individual companies, I'd tell you to focus on three things. The first thing would be find a company that originated in China. The second thing that I would tell you is look for companies that are fairly large in market cap but still have room to grow. And then the third thing I would tell you is look for companies that have government leadership entrenched into the company. So companies like Tencent and Alibaba are perfect examples of businesses that started in China. They're large and still have even more room to grow, and they have tons of government entrenchment. I know this sounds really simple, but let's face the facts: China is a dictatorship that is. Dressed up in a capitalist costume, so if you're going to try to participate in those markets, I think the best way to try and achieve that is through the, that three simple step process. If you're buying individual companies, and if you want to do the ETFs, that's fine. So, as a side note, I don't personally have any investments in China, but、uh, Adam, for asking such a great question. We have an online course called our Intrinsic Value Course that we're going to give you completely for free. Additionally, we have a filtering and momentum tool, which we call TIP Finance. We're going to give you a year-long subscription to TIP Finance completely for free. Leave us a question at asktheinvestors.com. That's asktheinvestors.com. If you're interested in these tools, simply go to our website, theinvestorspodcast.com, and you can see right there in our top-level navigation. There's links to TIP Finance and also the TIP Academy, where you'd find the Intrinsic Value Course. All right, guys. That was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.